This is the Tom Baker Show. Welcome to the Tom Baker Show. We have a lot of ground to cover on this show, a busy one coming up. Uh, Lots of little things that I want to kind of discuss and update you all on. But uh, first, I want to get right to the heart of this particular episode, and it is concerning the RPM Act. And if you're not familiar with that, um, it is recognizing the protection of motorsports is what RPM stands for. And this is a bill that is currently going through uh, Congress. And it's something that we really need to get past here. And all of us who are involved in motorsports, no matter which part of the sport you're involved in, all of us need to be concerned with this and all of us need to track this and all of us need to do what we can to help this go forward Karen Bailey Chapman is with us from SEMA PRI. And uh, Karen, it is great to have you on the show. And first of all, talk a little bit about your particular position here and what you do. And uh, tell us a little bit about um, where you're at at the moment with regard to uh, the, the RPM Act. Great. Thanks so much for having me on, Tom. Really, uh, really appreciate the opportunity. And, uh, you know, I joined SEMA and PRI last October, so I just celebrated my six-month anniversary. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. It's a great industry to work for. Uh, You know, it's obviously combining my professional background in in politics and policy with my passions as as somebody who uh, who enjoys vehicles in her in her spare time as well. So, uh, you know, it's just been a great, uh, great first six months and, and really hit the ground running, um, you know, with all of the work that we're doing, everything from, you know, the RPM Act to um, really digging in and, and creating and, and, and really harnessing our political muscle as an industry and, and taking on a lot of different legislative matters uh, across the board. So well beyond the RPM Act. So it's been a really busy six months, but just loving every moment of it. So talk a little bit about, first of all, the genesis of the RPM Act. Why did this come into being and what was the thinking behind the creation of it? Sure. The RPM Act actually started after the EPA had issued uh, some statements in, in language that basically decided that converting you know, tampering with any kind of emissions, even if you're converting your vehicle from a street legal car into a racing car, they basically said it was illegal. And that was back in 2015. And so the EPA eventually walked that language back because of the outcry from the industry. But at the time, SEMA and PRI decided that maybe we should go ahead and, and pursue a legislative solve for this so that the EPA can't kind of you know, dither uh, as to sort of what does it, what do they sort of feel like doing, you know, today versus tomorrow versus, versus the next day. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, we were looking at it saying, okay, how do we provide certainty for the industry and particularly for the racing industry going forward um, so that we don't have this kind of opportunity for EPA to be 
to, to make sort of arbitrary decisions like they did back in 2015. So that's really where, where the legislation began. Okay, so w- now tell us the details of the legislation. What exactly is this piece and what is it designed to do? So the legislation, the purpose of the legislation was, again, to provide that certainty and ultimately, you know, sort of in the starting forms of it was to to determine that the that those that want to create or, or, or convert their streetcar into a, a legal racing car um, that they could. Uh, over the time, this was actually this legislation was introduced back in 2016, um, but over the past guess it's 17 years now, or excuse me, seven years, not 17, seven years, um, you know, the legislation evolved. And what we ultimately ended up with was a state, uh, a conversation or, you know, some work uh, within Congress at the end of last year's congressional session. So this past December, where really the language had ultimately diverged from that in original intent, that original purpose, which is basically saying in law that we can convert um, streetcars into race cars. Uh, and so really the legislation kind of morphed in into something that we really believed uh, at that time in December um, really wasn't in the industry's best interest. It's not where we had started uh, and nor is it where we wanted to end. Um, because at the end of the day, when we embarked on the RPM Act and pushing the legislation, one of the promises we made to ourselves as well as to all of our provide certainty, but not put on onerous regulation and ultimately had to say no um, to to the language that uh, congressional. Give us some specifics as to, okay, how the legislation did talk about that. I feel like what you're saying is that um, we started in one place and then um, we sort of got confused and lost our way. Is that accurate? Well, I don't think that it was it was us losing our way. Uh, we certainly have opponents um, to what we were trying to accomplish. The environmental lobby, um, you know, sort of c- creates this uh, this narrative that if we allow for this, allow for people to convert their vehicles, then we're going to have you know illegal vehicles all over the planet, um, and and therefore you know spew emissions, which is ah, really okay. not the case. Right. <laughs> and so we didn't lose our way. Um, but of course, in politics, there's always a negotiation, and so ultimately, where um, where where what we were offered as sort of our final deal, we really just couldn't accept. It was um, you know because we wanted to make sure that whatever was put into place was something that um, wasn't again an onerous regulation on the distributors and manufacturers of of these parts okay you know what they they're looking for guidance right they're trying to say tell us what you want us to do but then they're saying oh no we're going to collect all this information on the back end and 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 you know i could certainly share some um some examples of what it is that they were looking for but at the end of the day we're saying no this is actually far far too overreaching for what it is that we're trying to seek, which is the simple clarification of, of allowing the, the cars to be um, converted legally. Yeah, because I think it's important to make the um, build the picture for those listening that um, this really encompasses a wide swath of the motorsports industry, because not only do you have you know, on, on dirt track and, and oval track, uh, pavement ovals all over the country, you have what we know as street stocks that are basically, mm-hmm. again, converted cars, your front wheel drive classes, all of the, the little bomber classes, four cylinder classes, but you've got um, a number of divisions that run 
in the straight line realm as well that um that that start out as street cars and get converted um and you know so there's a very wide swath of the motorsports um mm-hmm. industry that's affected by this so um that is why this is so important talk about um where we are now because from my understanding we came fairly close last year to actually getting this thing passed or at least it got far more you know serious in the discussion phase but now you're saying we're we're kind of regrouping a little bit so where are we presently with regard to this and um have have the 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 goals changed at all in terms of what this bill is designed to do Sure. So right now we're not pursuing a legislative solution to this. The politics of Washington really haven't changed. I think everybody that kind of follows along, whether they want to or not, of, of what happens in Washington um, knows that, it, you know, it's still a heavily divided Congress. Uh, you know, obviously um, the workings between the two parties and, and even within parties is really strange. So we don't see a change per se um, with regards to the political environment compared to say in December, you know, mm. there's been a few, a few nudges here and there, but at the end of the day, we're still kind of dealing with the same political environment, that same divided political environment that, um, that we've been dealing with for the past few years. So for us at this point in time, we're really looking to take this uh, and seeing if we can actually deal directly with our regulators, with the EPA and saying, we're asking, you're telling us not to do this and complying with our members on the back end of the process. So basically taking this uh, a bit of a, a guilty until proven innocent approach, but we don't have guidance on the front end saying, okay, if I'm manufacturing this part or if I'm retailing this part, okay, what do I have to do to demonstrate or what do I have to do to comply with what it is that you'd like us to do EPA? And so, you know, it's going to be it's going to provide a lot more certainty and surety, particularly from the manufacturers and the retailers, which are the ones that got hit with all of the different fines over the past few years from the EPA. How do we take care of this and get them to an agreement on the front end of the supply chain versus putting all of the people within this industry and particularly on the manufacturing and, and retail side saying, you know, instead of them living in fear of what could happen to them down the road? Uh, and so, you know, we're not uh, so we're continuing to to seek out a solution to what we originally wanted to accomplish, which is, again, providing some certainty for the industry so that they continue to go forward and thrive as we always have. Uh, but taking that directly to in a conversation with the regulators versus hanging our entire hat on legislation. It's not to say that um, we'll never, you know, take a look at legislation again, or if, or if a, if a member of Congress chooses to reintroduce the legislation, we'll certainly support it. But right now, we're putting our resources into dealing directly with the regulators, who are the ones who have decided they have a problem with us, and say, okay, fine, define for us on the front end what it is that you want, um, and see if we can come to a working agreement that way. Okay, so this it sounds like there's maybe been a little bit of um, just kind of a redirection of your focus from getting legislation through to dealing directly with the EPA, which is the group that sort of raised the fuss to begin with. Right. So this seems Mm -hmm. like it may be a better approach. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about 
how serious this got, especially, you know, in, you know, from 15 to say, you know, 2020 or 2021. Um, I mean, I heard some stories of some of these manufacturers and retailers being fined tens of thousands of dollars and given like 30 days to pay the fine or it astronomically uh, escalates. I mean, tell us, give us some examples of, you know, what this was and, and what's going, what was going on here that made this RPM Act um, kind of come into being and, and, and become such a focus so quickly. Cause I feel like you used a word overreach and I, it sure seems like that uh, that's not an exaggeration here. Right. Well, and actually, you know, the RPM Act preceded um, the EPA's action three years ago when they put our industry onto the National Compliance Initiative. So this is really the list that EPA, we call it the naughty list here, where the EPA creates a, a naughty list um, of saying, okay, now we're going to focus our enforcements against these industries um and you know it can be anything from you know coal-fired plants to you know big manufacturing that's dumping stuff into rivers um but then we we ended up on that nci list um three years ago actually almost four years ago and so that's really also where this shifted so let's set aside what epa said about us in 2015 that started the rpm act where the where where the rubber really hit the road was when we were put onto the compliance list, um, that's really where we saw the uptick on actions against members of the industry. Uh, and over $30 million of fines um, wow. have been issued over the past um, three years as a result of this. And you say tens of thousands of dollars, but there were also members within our industry that were you know, getting hit with fines that were hundreds of thousand dollars. And there's even been, I think, a couple that are over a million. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so where, where also some of this came from, because it really focused on the diesel, on the diesel part of our, of our crew and, and diesel delete systems, which really stemmed from the Volkswagen, um, the, the Volkswagen um, issue when they were found to have been sort of skirting emissions tests and, and in fact weren't emissions compliant. And so when folks, when that happened with Volkswagen, it really just put a giant spotlight as well as a giant target on the automotive industry. And in particular, our part of the industry, especially those in the delete systems. Now, while most of what was enforced against was, was delete was diesel related products. Um, there were also, you know, a number of ones that also had actions taken that against them uh, on you know that were that were gasoline engines so it wasn't just diesel uh, although that was the the major part of that um but yeah i mean look there there are stories that i've heard um with uh in talking with members where you know the epa shows up on their front door in the morning and like i said sort of takes this guilty until proven innocent approach saying well we saw you sold and i'm using this as an example we saw you sold 30 30 35 of these parts that were quote unquote race race only and so we need you to prove that all 35 of those parts were in fact used for race only. And so now the person, you know, whether it's a manufacturer or a retailer has to go back. Um, you know, some of them would collect information, like maybe have a, a box to click saying, you know, I, I verify that I'm using this for race only. Right. So they have to go back and, and verify it. Like they literally have to stop what they're doing and now go comply with what the EPA's question is. And even in cases where, okay, well, I, I, we know we can verify 30 of the 35 
uh, were, you know, for, we can prove that 35, 30 of 35 were used for race, um, but we don't know where the other five are. So that company is still, you know, still fined. And, you know, what happened with a lot of these companies is that they were, they were forced to sign consent, consent decrees that basically says, I shall never sell this part again, or wow. I shall never conduct like this again. Um, which again, you know, I think the, the hard part of all of this, and I think for all of us to get our heads around is the fact that, you know, you've got big manufacturing, you know, big polluters out there, they're dumping stuff into our rivers, throwing stuff into our air. Sure. And yet you're, you're, hang, you're, you're hammering on small businesses. These are mom and pop shops, not all of them, but a lot of them were. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's really the devastating part of, of what, what we were dealing with and, and, and really the travesty of all of this, which again goes back to why we want to find a solution on the front end that we can all agree to with our regulators versus, you know, having EPA show up on our doorsteps or worrying about EPA showing up on our doorsteps in the future. And I think that it's important for us to um, to clarify here that, you know, we're all in favor of making our planet safer. We're all in favor of reducing emissions wherever we can and doing whatever we can in order to, um, you know, to to achieve that goal but we we just want to make sure i think you're saying we we need to make sure that we're doing this in a way that doesn't you know put a bunch of people out of business in a way that doesn't discriminate against certain industries um or types of businesses we we want to be able to have some common sense in all of this um with that being said so where are we right now in terms of the work that you're doing with the EPA? Um, has has there been any progress? Is the EPA listening? Um, you know, is is there movement toward a common sense solution to all this that that keeps the motorsports industry going um, and doesn't, you know, displace great sections of it like we talked about earlier? Yeah, you know, look, so far, you know, the EPA has been open to a conversation. Um, I think if there's anything that's a benefit, despite the fact that we weren't able to get our PM to where we wanted it to be in the final days, you know, I think one of the silver line, linings out of this is the work that was done by the team here. It predated me, but the work that was done here um, that really develop relationships within the EPA, within the agency, and being able to highlight what the industry has done in terms of uh, emissions compliance. I mean, look, you look at what SEMA has invested, they've invested, we've invested over $25 million in emissions compliance tools for, and in testing systems in our California garage, and now actually also going to be going to be in our in Detroit garage as well, is to, to, to have those tools so that our members who, who want to be compliant have the ability to be compliant. Um, so I think the, the, the positive thing is that we did establish a bridge uh, of relationships with the EPA, and we're hopeful that that will um, continue to keep that door open for us to have that conversation. So those conversations are ongoing. Uh, we know that government obviously uh, moves a little slowly, but um, you know, again, it's it's you know had some positive indications so far, and we appreciate that. 
Um, but again, we have such a, a, a story to tell, particularly from a SEMA perspective and PRI, is the fact that we've invested in emissions compliance. We've invested to get the tools, whether you're a small operator or a larger manufacturer, um, to, to be emissions compliant um, and, and, and do the right thing as we all, you know, I think generally seek to do. Well, that's it's good to hear that at least there's an open door and that they're listening. And I mean, have they sort of taken a, a, a deep breath here with regard to, you know, the enforcement part of this? And, and, and at least have they sort of stopped kind of looking for 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 reasons to be enforcers? Have they kind of given some space here for both sides to work this out? Because I feel like that's. That's very important here. And in motorsports, you know, the, the just the economic impact of motorsports in this country. I mean, in Pennsylvania, um, it's about a two billion dollar a year economic boom alone, economic impact alone. It, you know, when you figure here in North Carolina, it's probably closer to six. Um, you know, and, and, and of course you just multiply that out across the country and that encompasses everything from the, you know, the tiniest, um, you know, go-kart track to, you know, to NASCAR and IndyCar and, 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 and drag racing and the like, um, you know, you, you want to do, you want to come up with solutions that obviously move toward the goal of being more, um, you know, climate friendly, but also, you want to make sure that you don't again uh, disrupt the motorsports industry to a, a point where you know in some sectors at least it could be catastrophic, and it seemed like that's where we were heading not too awful long ago in in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we're really um, you know we're, we're we're remaining very optimistic with the, the conversations with EPA um, and, and sort of seeking out the ability for us to, to to partner with them in coming together with a solution. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, we've also seen a downtick in um, in these compliance um, you know sort of enforcement initiatives, not compliance enforcement initiatives. We have seen a downtick recently. Um, you know, in terms of any kind of actions against uh, companies. Um, I also think, too, is, you know, for us, when we say $30 million in fines, you know, that which is a big hit for our industry, and especially when we know most of that was hit hitting small businesses. Yes. Um, you think about like even in 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 the in in the Volkswagen diesel gate. I mean, Volkswagen alone was hit by two point eight billion dollars in fines. So at the end of the day, there's not a lot of not a lot of juice in our squeeze because you're squeezing small businesses who can't afford to overcome sometimes um, these kinds of enforcement actions. And quite frankly, you know, they're faced with, you know, how do we keep ourselves afloat or do we just shut down? Um, and so really attacking small business uh, really isn't probably uh, the way for the EPA to continue uh, to take action. I think they've sort of made their point uh, in terms of, uh, you know, following the diesel gate with Volkswagen and, and sort of the concerns of the automotive industry and specifically as their take on the motorsports industry. Um, but let's, you know, I think we're pretty optimistic in, in sort of where we can head in, in terms of uh, something that will work for everybody involved. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the motorsports industry in general, I mean, obviously there's only so much that the kind of grassroots level can do, right? But I feel like everything kind of flows down from the top and, I, and, and the initiatives that you're seeing 
um, obviously an F1, but also, you know, IndyCar, NASCAR with regard to, you know, motors and, and, and all of that fuel in, in, I, I think is, is something that those, those, uh, parts of the industry are concerned about and, and everybody's kind of working in that direction. I've even seen some of the NASCAR teams that are saying, you know, they're neutral, um, carbon now. Uh, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I love seeing that the end that the motorsports industry is moving in that direction. And it makes me feel a little bit better that it seems like now that, uh, DC is saying, okay, we see that. And, and we understand that you're, you know, you're, you're here at the table and, and, you know, let's, let's talk. That's how every good solution arrives, right? With conversation and an open mind. And, um, it sounds like there's reason for optimism here. Um, rather than the situation being as, you know, seemingly dire as it was a couple of years ago. Well, Tom, I think you hit the nail on the head by the by your reference to the grassroots. And I think we wouldn't be here today at this point in the conversations without the grassroots yeah. of this industry across the country. I mean, we ended up just in RPM Act alone, sent 1.5 million letters into Congress wow. in the course of the past two years. That's significant. I think one of the things when I started at SEMA, I knew who SEMA was just because of, again, I'm an enthusiast on the weekend. Um, but you, when you, when you sit there and you're in front of a lawmaker or opinion leaders and, you know, everyone sees, you know, a car that's lift or, you know, a car that's lowered or a Jeep that's lifted or a car that's got a supercharger or they have a friend that races at their local track on the weekends or, you know, all of the things that we touch, people don't, didn't always realize that we're like an actual thing. We're an actual industry. Right. And, and so when you sit there and say, well, actually, you know, just a specialty automotive aftermarket, and this doesn't even count, you know, all the racetrack as you referenced earlier, um, we're a $51 billion industry in this country. That's huge. And this is is literally for people who enjoy what they do, whether it's as an enthusiast or it's their profession. It's the fact that we teach technical skills. These are family-oriented businesses and, and, and environments and communities. And so, you know, having that impact, 1.5 million letters, and, and, and having that opportunity to bring this industry to Capitol Hill and for lawmakers to really now put sort of two and two together, they realize the significance of our grassroots. And we really wouldn't have been here where we would have gotten where we were without them. And so I think it's just, it, that's one of the best parts of this industry is the fact that we have our hearts and minds and everything um, invested in what we do. And, and we were able to show that voice and the power of that voice okay so that leads me quite well into my next question which is um a majority of our audience is comprised of the grassroots levels and the regional levels of motorsports and so um right now today uh with with the sort of change in focus um toward you know dealing specifically with the epa which i think is a, a, a really, really brilliant move. Um, and it sounds like it's starting to produce some positive results. Um, what can the average short track race fan racer team track series? What can the individual, what can I do? What can members of our audience do as individuals, um, to keep this sort of, I don't want to say the word pressure, that sounds negative, but just keep this awareness out there that, look, we, you know, we want to help and we want to be, 
you know, efficient and, and, and climate friendly, but we also need to keep going with our business and keep the racing industry going. What can the average person do? What actions can we take in order to do our part to help that? That's wonderful. Thanks for that question. You know, I think number one, especially if you're a racetrack owner or operator or a race team, invite your lawmakers to your events, whether it's your federal lawmaker, your state lawmaker, even your local lawmaker. Um, they need to see that connection and make that human connection um, with actually what's happening within the communities and the in the communities in which they represent. So don't hesitate to invite lawmakers. If you ever have a question, we're actually putting together a bit of a toolkit of how to do that. Um, we're happy to help and we're happy to lend that support, um, you know, the logistical support of, of helping somebody put that together. But if you're in that sort of space, um, invite your lawmaker um, so that they can see firsthand um, really what it is that we're talking about. Um, I think the second part, because you know, with, with where we are with RPM Act right now, uh, and because it's sort of a more direct conversation with EPA, you know, there's really not an action to take, you know, in terms of writing writing your member of Congress at this moment, especially since we don't have there's there's no existing legislation at this moment because the the new Congress came in into January. But, you know, we've got, um, if you've been following the news or if you've heard, you know, the EPA actually just released new greenhouse gas emissions for uh, rules for vehicles for the automotive market uh, last week. And, you know, really where we see some of uh, the issues with that is, is what they're going to be doing to uh, the future of the internal combustion engine. Uh, we see this as something that's uh, in the way the proposed rules, as well as the way the Biden administration has um, sort of uh, talked about in the past, is that they're really putting the thumb on, on sort of one technology, and that's electrification. Yeah. Um, you know, from, from a SEMA perspective, we're pro all technology. We think all technology um, should be considered. Uh, we think we also believe you should. You know this as somebody who comes through the racing community. I, you know, I always say this: and innovation starts in the aftermarket. Innovation starts within racing. Um, you know, when you see safety in our vehicles today, a lot of that comes from from what was discovered in, in the racing industry. Yeah. When you see the fuel stuff and fuel, even, you know, you know, whether it's fuel injection or all of the different technologies that we use, you know, you see that come out in the ultimate sort of what we in the daily drivers that you sure. see outside on the car lot. Right. And so, um, so the fact is that we believe that technology is it, that technology is really something that needs to be market driven, not government driven. And so really this is kind of the next um, the next big issue we're really focused on. And so it'll be an opportunity for the grassroots to weigh in uh, on these proposed rules and with their members of Congress and the fact that the EPA and their acceleration moving us towards an electrific, you know, almost an, an almost all electrified vehicle fleet really is is a is a big threat to the future of racing and to all of us that are whether you're a professional or an amateur um enthusiast or racer yeah it sure it sure looks that way i mean from from my point of view um it certainly seems that way and again we all want to we all want to find sort of that middle ground that we can all agree on um, that is both common sense driven and logic driven, but also efficient so that we don't mm-hmm. end up in a in a situation where it's cost prohibitive to race or where, frankly, the options for racing in terms of motors or fuels or whatever are so limited that, you know, you end up, again, displacing large portions of the overall motorsports industry. Um, and so, you know, hopefully, uh, 
you know, conversations like this uh, that you're having now with the EPA. And again, keep writing letters, keep keep the the awareness going like you. You made a great point. If you're a track owner or you're a series owner, bring your local federal state, local state and federal uh, uh, politicians, representatives to your to your event to your racetrack and get to know them and let them really understand the industry because i think that's another part of the problem too is a lot of a lot of the folks who are concerning themselves with this probably have never been to a race they probably don't understand um all of the little things that that happen um and you know i mean i i always uh when i whenever i'm at even a nascar race and i'm sitting in the media room doing my job I'm kind of thinking about how many thousands of people are on the grounds doing their job at the same time I'm doing mine and and making this all work in in sort of this synchronized dance kind of thing that happens right um you just don't realize how many people it takes to make that event happen in every little you know and so the number of jobs and and again just the economic impact um we need to find that middle ground and be able to keep the discussions going so um you know that's it's important i think that everybody who owns a motorsports related business or an automotive related business for that matter um it's important that you know who your your representatives are at each level of government and that you ha- you build that relationship with them and um you know and and let them really see what you know what goes on and what you're doing um so um what else should we know uh karen and and is there a place i mean i know there for a while there was kind of uh, there was a petition that went around for the rpm mm-hmm. act is there that place where again us individuals who are concerned with the future of the sport um can go and sign something or put something so that you can collect it and collectively disperse it where it needs to go to the people that need to see it. Sure. Um, so we're actually right now in the process of um, updating our advocacy section in at SEMA.org. Um, so that's certainly a place that uh, you can go for now okay. um, or, or actually in the future, excuse me, um, we should be getting that ready to release. It'll be just a, an easier to get to portal for everything advocacy at SEMA. Perfect. Um, but also, um, you know, we have a tremendous, where our grassroots really exists too is also within our SEMA action network, which the email or excuse me, the website address is SEMA SAN, S-A-N dot com. So that's the SEMA Action Network, um, and that's really a, probably the best portal right now for all of the stuff that's going on legislatively, whether it's at the federal level or at the state level and even some local issues. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'd say go first, and then um, we'll continue to roll out all of the great things we're doing here uh, as the advocacy arm of both SEMA and PRI. We just have a lot going on. And, you know, the one thing I'll just say is um, I remember attending my first NASCAR race probably about 13 years ago. And there is nothing. And then I, my, my most recent one was actually the Coca-Cola 600 last year. Nice. And from even in that span of time, the first, when you hear the engine start up and you feel that rumble going as the energy and they start doing their warm up laps and you, and you hear it, it's, I'm sorry, there's just nothing more exhilarating just to, 
to feel that power come alive. And I just think of, of how that made me feel 13 years ago, how it still makes me feel today, and how it's so important for lawmakers and, and others within the community to, to feel that same thing when that, that rumble starts. And, and, uh, and then you just see, you see just the, the power of the sport and, and the, the athleticism and everything that goes on all over, um, whether you're on the oval or road track or anything in between. Well, that's a, that is such a great point too. And, and just the overall passion of the sport. Motorsports is a very experiential sport. It, you, it, TV does not do it justice. You have to be there in person. You go to an NHRA drag race event just for one day. And if you're anywhere near the start line of that event and you just <laughs> feel the ground shake underneath you, mm-hmm. that's a sensory experience that is just not repeatable anywhere else other than maybe a space shuttle lunch um you know and so it's it's we really people say that you know if they ever turn the noise off of the cars i don't know if i want to go watch anymore and i've always (laughs) you know i've kind of always thought well you know i i um the the it's funny because i remember several years ago i was visiting my mother and and she was flipping the dials and she found a formula e-race now she had no idea that this existed and this of course for those who don't know formula electric these are electric cars and um, she's looking at the race and she, she's kind of fiddling with a remote. I said, what are you doing? She said, I, I, I can't figure out how to turn the volume up. She said, oh. <laughs> and, and then, then when she realized, um, that there, that there was no volume coming from the cars, she kind of looked at me and said, what are these cars? And I had to explain that these were electric cars, they you know, and they run on battery power, and that you know, halfway through the race, we're changing cars because the battery doesn't get us through an entire event. And she kind of just, you know, and again, she's eighty-one or whatever she was at the time, and she's kind of looking at me with with this puzzled look on her face, going, "That's strange." And you know, right. <laughs> you know, um, I love Formula E. Honestly, if for mm-hmm. me, I appreciate the the progress of that and racing to me competition is competition if there's passing and all of that but you know what you are correct the noise is a big deal and if it becomes some sort of artificially created thing i wonder how that resonates you know and so um there has to be a way here to to go (laughs) forward and um to be more efficient and be more climate concerned and, and all of that and still be able to to carry on as an industry, let alone the the motorsports piece of it, but as an automotive industry, um, you know, I think there's room for um, multiple different types of technology, and and I think um, keeping an open mind to having multiplicity there is always good, um, and serves sort of the whole public some of whom just may not care for the idea of having to have an electric car. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe we can give them a car with, with, you know, zero emissions or, or close to zero emissions with some other alternative fuel. Um, so yeah. Um, thank you so much, uh, Karen, for your time today and to talk with us and update us. And we hope that um, we can kind of keep an open line to you here as things progress and, and uh, as uh, changes happen or hopefully progress happens, please uh, come back and keep us up to date here um, so we can keep our audience updated as well. 
Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. It was great talking with you and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. That is Karen Bailey Chapman from SEMA PRI. And uh, we've been talking about the RPM Act and kind of the general concern about, um, you know, the continued efforts to make uh, motorsports and the automotive industry in general uh, kind of more climate efficient. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Karen Bailey Chapman. And that was something that we've been wanting to do with this show for a while. And we're going to do more of it. Um, Really think it's important for all of us who are connected to the sport, whether we're a fan or we're inside the sport in some way, make our living from it um, through driving or whatever the role is, or have a business that deals with motorsports. It's important to know what the government's up to with regard to the sport. And I think the work that SEMA and PRI are doing on our behalf is absolutely amazing. And we're going to try to um, avail them of all of our media here at Steering Wheel Nation to try and keep you updated with everything that is going on that you need to know. Okay, so now let's do what we usually do to start the show. Let's go to our warm up segment. And we go around the tracks and we're focusing on the big series here. And two of them were off. F1 and IndyCar were off. We'll get to what they're up to in a moment. Let's talk NASCAR. Plenty to talk about, both locally in the U.S. and internationally, right? Um, the NASCAR Xfinity Series, the Cup Series, were both at Sonoma. And I think, you know, we a lot of NASCAR fans have grown to really appreciate the road courses in NASCAR. Put on some great racing especially in in recent years, the road courses have been really exciting. And as we've gone to some new ones like Coda, for example, you know, I think uh, fans are really falling in love with road racing as a part of NASCAR. Sonoma, for whatever reason this weekend, eh, that's basically my grade. Eh. So if I'm on a scale of one to 10, it's a five overall weekends of five. Now, the Xfinity race, I thought, was about a seven. The cup race, probably a four. So somewhere five, five, five and a half is where it averages out. Um, We'll talk cup first. The GT car, for whatever reason, is, it's weird because it's a road race car. It's, It's a grand touring car. It's basically akin to an Australian supercar, right? And boy, you'd think, that you get great racing out of that on road courses, but we we've had some, but this surely wasn't one of them. And I, you know, it's I don't know. It's interesting for me. Martin Truex dominated, and you're obviously you're never going to stop a driver and a team from just hitting the nail on the head on a given day, and that's what happened Sunday. Truex getting the win. Kyle Busch finished second, and again just adding more fuel to the fire uh, in terms of his impact with Richard Childress racing and me saying that I believe that Kyle will win the championship this year. And I believe that uh, before the season even started, I just, the eight team was already championship pedigree with Tyler Reddick. And now you put Kyle Busch in the car and you, all that experience and his added elevated knowledge of how to make cars work that he's had versus Reddick and the championships he's won 
And the fact that he's motivated and really was, I think, out to prove something this year, much like I think Larson was uh, when he came back after uh, being out of the sport for a year. I think Kyle was, when he showed up with Hendrick, Kyle was out to, he was motivated. He was out to prove something. And I think Kyle Busch is in that situation this year. It's been a great season so far for that team. He was close, but just didn't have enough to compete with Truex. Joey Logano finished in third. Um, again, I, not a, it wasn't, certainly wasn't a terrible race, but it just wasn't a great one. It was kind of just all right for me. Um, the Xfinity series was in action too. Uh, you have four cup drivers finish in the top four spots. So for me personally, who's always kind of about giving the regulars the opportunity to shine, that race surely didn't. Um, Eric Almarola got the win. AJ Almendinger was second. Kyle Larson was third. And Ty Gibbs finished in fourth. The first Xfinity Series regular across the line was Parker Kligerman, who finished in fifth at Big Machine Records team, doing a nice, having a nice season so far. And I think it's going to get better. And I would keep my eye on that car actually in this coming race at Nashville. And that's where we kind of take NASCAR next, right? All three series are headed to Nashville, not this weekend, but next weekend. It will be NBC's return as the broadcast host for the year. So we'll see how that all works out. And it's right at, we're right about halfway, right through the season. So we're, we got a week off and then it's that long stretch that you go through and we're going to find out over the next three or four weeks, I think, who the teams are that are playoff teams. And not just because you won a race earlier in the year, but because you're ready to compete for a championship and who the teams are that just aren't quite there. Um, the Nashville should put on a great show. The highlight for this new car, the GT car in the Cup Series, has been the... Um, has been the, the mile and a half, the intermediate. So uh, I look for some great racing in Nashville. Okay, I want to talk about, I'm, I'm just going to sort of give some stats here about Garage 56's accomplishments at Le Mans, and then we're going to talk about it again in hot topic in a in a bigger picture sense in a moment. But Let's uh, talk about the 24-hour Le Mans. First of all, Ferrari winning first attempt in half a century, and they win. That was awesome to see. Uh, Garage 56, I think, overshadowed that, believe it or not, on the international stage. Seeing that Camaro out there and seeing it racing with competitively with what, what else was there was really something. Um, Jimmy Johnson, Jensen Button, and Mike Rockefeller did a phenomenal job. Um, man, to to be able to to see that Camaro complete twenty four hundred thirteen point one miles was a real accomplishment, and to see the reception that it got and the energy it brought to that race to me was a little bit shocking. Quite honestly, I was not expecting to see the rest of the world be so excited about a car that really was, it was basically their 
as an experiment. I mean, there isn't even a class, obviously, for it. So um, it was uh, it was pretty unbelievable to watch that and to see where where that all went, especially during the the broadcast. And, you know, it was interesting having to go to Motor Trend to watch such a magnificent one of the real you know top races in the world and and it's on motor trend tv like nbc abc cbs fox espn you know all these and nobody covers the 24 hours of lamar i can't believe that like i was really really surprised um i thought motor trend did a pretty nice job i think uh I would like to see them focus more on who's driving which car, especially in their ticker, because um, for someone like me who knows names but doesn't, I'm not an expert in that type of racing, it would have been nice to see names instead of just manufacturers um, on the ticker more. But um, But I thought they did a nice job with the coverage and... You know, Motor Trend, if you like automotive programming, Motor Trend is sneaky good. It really is. They do a really nice job. Um, their app is good. It was solid the entire way through. What I saw of it, I didn't certainly didn't watch the entire thing, but um, I really wanted to throw a compliment to Motor Trend and encourage you, if that's if you like automotive programming, go and look into that. Okay. Um, back to NASCAR International in a moment. Let's go to F1 off this weekend, off last weekend, back this weekend at the Pirelli Grand Prix du Canada in Montreal. And NASCAR has said they are looking at, and again, we'll get to this, but they're looking at Canada. Would love to see a NASCAR race in Montreal or Toronto, either or. They could be a. They've already got the Penny Series over there, but F1 coming back now. I saw a uh, a show about F1 online yesterday, and it talked about the fact that Max Verstappen doesn't listen. And I thought that was really interesting. We'll get to that in a future hot topic. But the the biggest story in F1 right now seems to be any anything that somebody could do to sort of tear down Max Verstappen or 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 lessen what he's doing with Red Bull. I mean, if Red Bull right now is clearly ahead of everybody else in the field, they've dominated the entire season. Does that change in Canada? I doubt it. I mean, I just, right now, I don't see anybody beating them unless they beat themselves. I think Red Bull could win this entire year out between Perez and Verstappen. Um, So F1 back this weekend in Canada, and then they've got a week off, but then they go to Austria and Great Britain back to back. And so um, a big stretch coming up for the F1 series. And IndyCar is also back this weekend after a weekend off. The Sancio Grand Prix on Sunday at one o'clock, and 
uh, obviously Road America is where they're racing. USA Network is going to be the um, the network of coverage for the IndyCar Series on Sunday. If you want to watch the race, 1 o'clock on Sunday on the USA Network. And without NASCAR to compete against it, um, IndyCar hopefully will have a good audience for this race. It should be a good one. Road America is one of my favorite road courses. And the question is starting to become, what of Alex Pillow, who is kind of the hot hand lately? Is this going to be an Alex Pillow season? I mean, I think this is probably one of the deepest IndyCar fields overall um, that we've had in a long time. But uh, keep your eye on Alex Pillow as we go through the next two or three races. If he continues to win or to even be on podium, I think he right now would have to be considered the favorite to win a second championship with Chip Ganassi Racing this year in the IndyCar Series. And I want to close our warm-up with a big congratulations to the NASCAR late model stock drivers at Hickory Motor Speedway. Last Saturday night, the Jack Ingram Memorial 111 for the NASCAR late model stocks. Hickory's been kind of embroiled in some you know, controversy and all of that uh, with some things that have happened there over the last couple of um, weeks. But um, let me tell you, 111 laps caution free, and it was a good race. Uh, Kate Brown and Tyler Matthews going at it. Tyler finally passed him late in the race and kind of drove away. And um, it, but it was it was super competitive, and again, caution free. And why do I bring that up on this show in this spot in a warm up? Well, because I've been over the last couple of days at the uh, summer shootout at Charlotte Motor Speedway for the Legends of the Bandolero cars. That is the top series for a kind of car, the Legends car, that has fed more than 30 drivers up into NASCAR over the years. Legends cars are worldwide and they're huge. More Legends car chassis were built and sold last year than any other type of race car. That's pretty amazing. And we're going to actually visit with Graham Smith, who is the VP of U.S. Legends International or NX. Um, and on next week's show, he'll be our featured guest. So we're going to have a conversation. Lots of... Uh, Crashing, banging, wild, crazy racing for the first uh, two rounds that happened on Monday and Tuesday of this week at Charlotte. It's all on flow racing, and that's one of the things I brought this up to let you know that if you want to catch some of the best racing you'll see at a development level, go and watch the Legends Cars on Flow Racing on Tuesday nights. at I think it starts at uh, 5 Eastern on Tuesdays on Flow Racing. And that will do it for the warm-up session for this show. It's time for this week's hot topic. And this week's hot topic is, should NASCAR expand internationally? I've heard and seen a lot of back and forth 
over this past weekend as Garage 56 was just absolutely being a hit with uh, everyone at Lamar. The question that goes back and forth is, should NASCAR be thinking about future expansion internationally? Well, first of all, before we answer that question, I think that a lot of fans really are not aware of the fact that NASCAR already is international. So let's talk a little bit about that. NASCAR currently sanctions over, this counts America, by the way, over 1,200 official stock car races in 20 different countries with across 11 sanctioned series. Okay, including the Pinty series, which is in Canada. You've got the NASCAR Mexico series. You've got the Brazil sprint race and the NASCAR wheeling Euro series. Okay, now those series, and of course you say, well, that's only four. Well, that's the four that are basically the big international series. You have to add in the series like the modified series, the late model series, all the one, the, this sort of sub series in America to get to 11, but, um, and of course trucks and Xfinity, but let's look at that. So NASCAR's already got a presence across the world and they have millions of fans NASCAR's fan base worldwide is much bigger than a lot of American fans realize that it is. And in fact, racing worldwide, if you look at it, you look at go-karts, go-karts here in the U.S. Yes, we have national touring series for dirt karts and some other types of karting, but for the most part, go-karts are considered sort of grassroots entry level. You don't see a lot of coverage except from within that little niche. We do our cart cast here on Steering Wheel Nation, but karting outside of the U.S. is huge. Now, Legends Cars, which again, we'll talk about more in next week's show, again, huge outside of the U.S., the way that the world perceives their racing and what's hot, what's not in other parts of the world is very different from here. And so I think a lot of the grassroots fans understand that, for example, sprint car racing in Australia, oh my gosh, it's off the charts. They love their sprint cars over there and they love American sprint car racing over there too, right? Well, NASCAR has got a much bigger fan base and following and presence than we realize as well. And NASCAR right now is at a very interesting crossroads in its history because the leadership that is in place currently is trying to accomplish a lot of goals at the same time. And I think that plays into my feelings about NASCAR now, there, there obviously are a multitude of ways to say that you're expanding internationally. The, the way that I think a lot of people are 
thinking when they talk about this topic is, do we take the Cup Series or the Xfinity Series or the Truck Series? Do we take any or all of those series and actually take those series uh, outside of the United States? And if so, how far? I think that's when you talk about NASCAR expanding internationally, that's what you're focused on. I think the fans here are kind of less concerned with the Wheel and Euro series, for example, or the Mexican series or the even the Pinties series. They're all great series, by the way. And they put on great racing in the fans and the teams. It's, 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 it's great, and it's great for NASCAR's brand. But I think what we're focusing on is NASCAR going international with the American series it has. You know, the, the plural of, of Cup, Xfinity, and Truck in some form or fashion. Here's my thought on this. First of all, should they be in Canada? Of course they should. The U.S.-Canadian fan base is kind of one, even though it's obviously two different countries. There's a lot of tie between Canadian drivers, American drivers, Canadian series, American series. You know, as far as the, that whole sort of North American, should we be in Canada? I absolutely think we should. And I think that it would be good for NASCAR's brand to be there. And again, there's been some talk about maybe going to Canada next year, uh, which could be, I think, perhaps being looked at as this is how we sort of replace uh, Auto Club Speedway, which is going to be down for a couple of years till they make it a short track. So that's one way. Do we put a Canadian race on the schedule? Is it time to go there? Are we prepared to go there? But here's the, the key with, with any expansion in my book is the dollars have to be right. It's one thing for NASCAR to want to take the, the big series farther and do an international show in Canada or you know Brazil or wherever it might be, right? Mexico. Um, we have history in Mexico. We obviously have history in Canada. Trucks have been racing in Canada um, right along, but I think that the big thing here is dollars. You have to be able to get enough money from those shows because obviously it's international travel is going to be very expensive for the teams. Not so much to Canada, but it, it, not to the degree. But if you're going to Brazil or you're going anywhere where you got to transport cars by boat, or whatever you get into shipping internationally, that kind of thing, you got to have some big dollars. So if, if the, if the teams can be financially rewarded in the right way and it's profitable, it would be a huge TV event, I believe. And if you take them to the right track or circuit, what I think we should avoid is, is, I think we should, at least for right now, try not to get ourselves into street races elsewhere. Um, I mean, I realize in some places that's what you got, but um, I'm not saying necessarily stick to ovals, but 
make sure that we've got a raceable road course. I would not want to see a NASCAR race at Monaco, for example. And I and, and I'm not saying that's even on the table, but that type of a course, it's so narrow, it's so hard to pass. It would just be a high speed parade. And I think I still say that's what you're going to get at Chicago too. It's going to be a high speed parade. I don't think you're going to see a lot of passing, but and I and I still worry about I, I worry more about security there than anything. But um but I think as far as NASCAR going international, I think there's it's already there. The base is already there. It's how you do it in a way that's profitable, not just for NASCAR, but for the teams as well. And then of course, you know, even with regard to if you think about, for example, media, you know, um, there's a core group of NASCAR media that travels to every race. Are they all, how do they all get wherever you're going? Again, Canada is not necessarily quite as bad, but if you're going to be going to Brazil or somewhere like that, then, you know, who pays for that? How does that work? You know, and so I think there's a lot to consider here. But if you're asking me, am I for or against it? I'm for it if it's done properly. And if it's not just done to benefit NASCAR itself, but if it can also benefit substantially the teams, because that's where you've got to look here. You've got to be able to take, you know, your front rows and, and your your teams that the, the alpha primes, you know, you got to be able, they've got to be able to be paid enough to go over there and put on the show wherever there is and make some money. You know, it, it has to be financially feasible. So if you can get a big bunch of money from somebody somewhere and it's feasible to do it, and, and the course is good, it would be a good, you know, could be a good race, then I think absolutely. And I think Garage 56 showed that the international audience is not opposed to NASCAR. That from from the, the, the track workers to other teams to the fans themselves, everybody was, I think, cheering this on. It was like, wow. This, you know, they didn't show up with a street stock, right? They showed up with a car that was ready to go. And, you know, I think it also proves a point because I've said now that even the, the Coke 600, right? That's, that used to be an endurance test. It is still for the drivers, but not anymore for the cars. I mean, that car, which is just a glorified Gen 7 car. I mean, it was... Obviously, it was modified for, you know, for the 24-hour race. But, I mean, it, it completed the entire 24 hours, basically. Yeah. So, um, 600 miles for these cars anymore is not that big of a deal. Um, so, do I want it, would I want to see a 24-hour NASCAR race? <sighs> yes. I actually would maybe not 24 start with a six hour and see what happens. Start with a six hour. And here's what I would like. To, I'd like to see it done. I see. This is where we, we get talk every once in a while about, you know, how do we differentiate the Xfinity series more from the cup series? Well, 
take Xfinity and, and, and make it do a few more things like that with it. You know, have, have a race where you, you have multiple drivers. I mean, why not? Even if it's an exhibition, see what happens. I'd like to see that sort of a thing. I don't know if I want to see a 24, but I certainly would like to see what would happen. But I, but I want to see, I do want to see more cross-pollination between the different types of racing, and we're starting to see it again. Um, you know, between Indy and NASCAR with like Larson going to run the 500 next year. And you've got some of those guys that, you know, that, that really have interest in running some NASCAR races. And now, you know, we, we've seen, uh, some F1 drivers come over and, and run, uh, NASCAR and Kobe Kobayashi from the IMSA series now is going to race Indy in the cup series on the road course for track house. So, we're seeing sort of more of a coming together of these series and a willingness for some of these drivers to take some risks and, you know, and, and to jump in into NASCAR and, you know, a guy like Mike Rockenfeller, Jensen Button to be in, you know, this garage 56 effort, Jordan Taylor was a huge part of that as well. Um, I mean, that just, that was stunning to me. So I think that if NASCAR is wise about how they proceed in the area of international expansion, could we see a cup race outside of the U.S.? Certainly Canada, Mexico, I guess, potentially. And, you know, I would think Brazil, possibly. But again, wisdom make it financially profitable or don't do it because you know the obviously there are far more smaller teams in nascar at all levels than there are the um big conglomerates like hendrick and penske and whoever gibbs um you've only got a, a handful of those the rest of them are all you know smaller operations and you really need to take care of those guys so if we can do it wisely, I say, let's give it a shot, but let's be careful and let's not jump right into it off the heels of this Garage 56. Should we see more NASCAR participation at Le Mans? Should there be a class for them at Le Mans? Why not? If there's demand and there's interest, why not? That's what I say, and that's this week's hot topic. And that will close the show for this week. You've been listening to The Tom Baker Show.